Word. Happy Halloween, everyone. <laughs> the H Word is Halloween. It's um, it's May now. It's May. Congratulations. Um, how long will May last? A day? Forever? <laughs> yeah. Hard to say. Yeah. Um, how you doing, Dan? Doing okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, nothing to report. Should we check in on the weather? It just got really hot outside. Oh, did it? I haven't been out enough. I, I must go out later. I've... How much have you been going outside, bud? Uh, a little bit. Um, I went out like three times this week. Yeah. Uh, and as you know, I've been trying to do the stairs in my building. Yeah. Um, but I'm hitting a bit of a wall with it. I, my foot is starting to hurt <laughs> in a way that is making me think like, I would normally go to the doctor for this, but I don't think it's bad enough these days. Yeah. I've had a few of those. My My one hip and one knee hurt a lot and all the space in between. All the space in between your hip and your knee, the whole upper thigh. Yeah. And huh. and again, I was like, I would go to the doctor for this. I would go to the doctor and check into what's happened to this toe I think I broke. <laughs> it, yeah. It's weird shape now. <laughs> but what you going to do? What's she going to do? You can't go to the dentist. For your toe. You never could. Yeah. No. Um, um, so, yeah, I'm, like, hurting in weird ways, and it's, like, ugh, I don't know. It's annoying. Um, but I did get out a couple times this week, got some walking in, did a bike ride. Do you wear a mask when you go out? Uh, yes and no. Yeah. Um, I've been wearing it at the store, went to the store today. Uh, but a bike ride, no. Yeah. So I, I went down, I've been going, trying to go out a bit more. Um, it, it's, I'm really, remember like you, there was at one point you brought up mixed messages and how they're like, stay inside, don't go out, going out kills yeah. people, but also yeah. get your exercise. I'm starting yeah. to feel the importance of that duality though, because without getting exercise, I'm getting fucking weird. And it, re yes. it really helps. Yes, but 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 can you describe in clearer terms now how you manage that duality? Um, oh, that's a really good question actually, Dan. Um I I just I think I I just understand the messaging being confusing. Um so, okay, I have a lot of thoughts about this. I personally for me just have to get over the anxiety of being told that going outside is bad and that I'm being a bad citizen and get my exercise and do it as responsibly as possible. Now, that said, hmm. um, I went out for a walk on, I usually go to the Lakeshore Boardwalk and like, it's too, it's still too crowded. Uh, nobody's wearing masks. Um, and so I do have a thought about that, I will say, which is that in the research that I've been doing, I do just wear a mask now when I go out at all. Um, I've made a couple of exceptions for walking around like in the dead of night when nobody's around. But um, the reading I did on sort of virus transmission and death rates is that the Czech Republic has done really well. And the only difference in their policy is that everybody has to wear a mask in public. Hmm. Now, me or you just wearing a mask might not make a difference. It really is something that has to be policy. But you know, when I was at the boardwalk, people are too close to each other. And like, I don't know, 5% of people are wearing masks. Right, right. And you know, when I'm in the grocery store wearing one and everyone else is, I, I do feel a lot safer. Yeah. And I think I also am. I don't know. It's all very confusing. There's studies of China where, like, you know, in, in hospitals, they were finding particles of COVID in the air. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. Okay. So, we started out trying to describe the duality and then... Oh, sorry. 
Well, well, what do you mean? So, oh, I guess the duality is that I, I feel like I can make my own choices and be as responsible as possible with getting exercise and also trying to stay in, aka wearing a mask outside. But I also see other people not wearing masks, and that makes me really frustrated. So there's a duality of thinking in there. Right. Okay. I think I'm getting my exercise responsibly, and I'm understanding how I'm still protecting myself and others while being outside. Uh-huh. And I wish that were policy. That's where I've landed. So it's sort of an answer right. to your question. It is. It is. So I, I guess like what I'm trying to what I'm trying to reconcile is um, people snapping a pic of a bunch of New Yorkers in the park and being like, "This is insanity." And so, like, would you say that if you just change if you just took that photo and put masks on everybody, it would no longer be okay to say this is insane? I don't know. Yeah, Dan, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know. know. We don't know. (laughs) We're sitting in a lot of uh, not knowing. Yeah. Yeah, we are. And, um, and, uh, that is, that is, uh, hard to sit with, but Mm. yet we do. I think the sort of just sort of danger of it is something that I'm just having to accept more. I've been thinking a lot about meditation and, Mm -hmm. um, the be here nowness of it. And just actually some of the stuff comes up in the interview that I have to throw to you later, but just like asking oneself, what can I do and what can't I do? Mm -hmm. And releasing yourself from the worry over things that you can't currently change. Yes. The serenity prayer. Yeah. Every time I'm able to get into a real be here now state of mind, it's, it feels very easy. It feel, I feel full of gratitude. I feel, um, I feel very light and I feel, I feel safe. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, it, it, it's, there's, yeah, it's interesting because it's like, you just, you can't, it's a nice, uh, thing that that exists, but you also can't stay there either. Um, I don't know about that. Really? I, I'm I, actually, this is sort of the area that I'm most interested in at the moment when it comes to the topics of, of this podcast and my general interests is like, I think that y- you and I have both established that we're really worriers. And mm-hmm. I think there's a way to affect change and not be stressed out about things you can't do anything about. I don't know what it is, but I feel like that's the thing I'm trying to sort of move towards now. Hmm. Yeah. It was a big one for me. Um, the interview I have coming up with my buddy Michael Rahal in Las Vegas, wowie zowie, um, he has, you know, a big relationship to 12-step programs. And th- some of the stuff he said was really interesting. And, and shockingly, because it's so, like, AA is so big in the culture, a lot of these insights were very new to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but that sort of serenity notion of like the stuff that's not your fault or your problem or that be realistic about what you actually are going to do and don't stress out about the fact that you haven't done some other stuff because it's not helpful. I don't I don't know where I'm going with those thoughts, but they feel really good directions to go. Okay. I don't know. Um, I sent you an article about meditation Yes. Uh, you don't have to have read it. But the, the thing is, <laughs> it's it, what's great about the article and the reason I sent it to you is because like it, um, it, it like 
it's a guy who went to India to study or to, to do like a 10 day silent retreat. And he just, he goes through his internal process of how fucking horrible it was. Huh. And like his brain just wouldn't stop. And it really made me think of the stuff you were saying about like, if meditation is to relax, well, it's maybe just not, or don't worry about that again, be here now. And if that's what's happening right now, that's what's happening. If thoughts are just cycling through your brain, sitting with that is still valuable and you have to do it for a while to, to feel the results. And, and also don't worry about results, but it's hard not to worry about results. (laughs) We're results people. We like to get stuff done. Absolutely. I, I had a little hopeful this week. Oh, great. Um, got an email. Uh, it's very, it's it's like very minutia, uh, but there is a um, organization called Curb TO, which is trying to um, change traffic lanes into pedestrian zones to uh, uh, address sidewalk crowding. Nice. Um, in my like specific neighborhood. So like, uh, we got the email cause it was like going to be affecting us. So like, um, yeah, just like, you know, uh, whether it's like part of a traffic lane or like shifting a bike lane over or like a parking lane or something like just, um, you know, uh, uh, what do they call it? Commandeering those things for, yeah. um, for this kind of traffic. Because, uh, as we've all experienced, I think the sidewalks are too small for six feet of different of distance. Yeah. So uh, have they made any um, progress? No, this is very much like a um, bureaucratic warning, you know, the kind of thing you get when there's going to be like construction right. in your area. So like, hopefully it doesn't take too long, but nice to see that um, people are listening anyway. Yeah. And, and, and trying to sort of move forward as a community to keep everyone safe. Yeah, it's like that is the right thing to do. It it should have been done by now, but that's the right thing. And so it's like, yeah, we're moving, moving forward towards uh, something good. Well, my hopeful is uh, the opposite of minutia. Um, when when I was sort of first talking to you about like when we were talking about podcast ideas in general, one of the things you said about me was like that I was good at making connections between things, but that we I can't just connect everything back to star stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, this is star stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, funny because I've already brought Carl Sagan up once. That's right. Um, so I, maybe it relates. Maybe this relates to the meditative stuff that um, that I, I when I'm fe- I, I've been trying to remove myself from the daily news and death numbers because they're they are seeming to do no good for me and not make me any more helpful in society. So. Um, I check the NASA news and website to just see what's going on out there really, really far and bigger than us. Yeah. Um, and it was the 30th anniversary of the Hubble Space Telescope. Yeah. So they released this photo that I just I, I just have been staring at of these two nebulae. Nebulae? I don't know how you say that. Um, I think you got it the first time. Nebulae. The, yeah. The... Giant red nebula, uh, NGC 2014, for those keeping track. And its smaller blue neighbor, keeping track. <laughs> NGC 2020. Uh, not going to get any letters on this. I'm reading this off the NASA website. So uh, this isn't another Celsius Fahrenheit debacle. Um, yeah. So we do know you're keeping track in some regard. <laughs> yeah. So I don't want any letters about the designations of these nebulae. I'm going to get notes on pronouncing that wrong. Um, but they're... 
unbelievably beautiful. It's like this big red expanse and then a little blue guy next to it. They've been called the the cosmic reef because they kind of look like coral reefs. And uh, first of all, they're beautiful photos that, that, that like given – Given what we normally see in media, it's hard for me to look at them and not think that they were invented by someone's fantastical imagination and CGI. Um, but there's something really intense that these are real photographs of something out there. And, taken 30 years ago or taken now? Um, I can't. I don't remember when they were taken. Well, this one says 2020, so maybe that's the year. Oh, now I'm going to get notes. Um no, I think it's out there. It's out there taking pictures, and this is a newer photo. I don't think it's from thirty years ago. Right, right. right. Um, but even though it's star stuff, there was something I found really comforting in being insignificant. Yeah, yeah. I think I think there's something in um, constancy, something very comforting in in uh, in something that is. It has been going on this whole time yeah. um, because I think disruption is such a big part of what people are going through now. And the idea that this kind of thing has always been the same is yeah. like really nice. Um, now it's making me cry again. Don't know if I'm crying because I'm sad or whatever. Uh, I don't know why, but there's something really big happening it's interesting. In a lot of the interviews I've been asking lately about sort of God and consciousness, I don't know why, but I feel like we're all going through some sort of big shift and understanding at the very least, even if, you, even if you're just fully into science, that we're part of something so unfathomably large means something. And I think we're maybe a little bit more considering that right now as a collective. I don't know. What do you think? I also don't know. Um, uh, anytime, anytime I allow myself to think of that, I don't know whether I don't know what aspect of my education makes me feel like that's too self-important. Oh, really? Yeah. I think it's the opposite. Oh, really? How how does it make you feel self-important? Uh, that, that to be part of something, um, you know, cohesive and designed and, uh, destined or something. Oh, like you're special. Yeah. Or it, meaning, I guess meaning is like, <laughs> meaning is too, uh, too important for me or something. I don't know what that is. Whoa. <laughs> that's, some, oops. That's good. <laughs> That's a good one for therapy, <laughs> I think. Oh, see, because huh. that's interesting, because to me, it makes me feel less of a self. Like, I feel like, I feel like being part of something that big is just completely release, releasing my individuality. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, I do see what you mean. And, and that is star stuff big time. <laughs> what do you mean when you say star stuff in relation to me? <laughs> uh, the, the, the idea that we are uh, merely the accumulation of... Uh, carbon. The, carbon particles. Yeah, exactly. Well, Recycled carbon particles. Yeah, we're more than that. We also take shits. 
Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm getting emotional because I'm down a pint of blood and I <laughs> I switched to was bl- it today black tea. Uh, no, that was yesterday. Okay. Yeah. I, I finally got through this gauntlet of trying to give blood for like months. Seems like you had a bit of a journey. Okay. Well. Okay. <laughs> then let me tell you the culmination of the journey. Uh, so finally, I, the appointments kept getting canceled and, and stuff like um, facilities were being shut down. I ended up driving out to Mississauga, which is a suburb of Toronto, um, yep. because it's just like getting away from downtown feels safer. And um, I live. At the yeah, West- the, the needles are cleaner out there. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, you don't have to like get on the subway and crowded streets to get there. Ah, but you were going to drive anyway. Yeah, but then also like parking in the downtown core. It just okay, all okay. felt like. It was easier and it's just as fast. So I went out to the suburbs to like a strip mall um, and and it was great. I, I actually recommend the experience. Like this was for all the ways that you see social distancing not being taken seriously. This was unbelievably well laid out. Okay. And there were multiple people whose entire job it was to mop everything down constantly. And I mean constantly. If someone wasn't sitting on it, it was being wiped down. Yeah. Um, which is what you expect, but it was very soothing in a way to be like, oh, people and everyone going there is obeying the rules and understands. Mm-hmm. That was very relaxing. Um, but I have a special pro tip for people giving blood. If you at the very end of all the blood being hauled out of you kind of turn over to the person doing it and go, I don't feel good. Then you get the deluxe treatment. <laughs> 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 uh, that's the like uh, they they uh, they like um take the velvet cordon down and they like lead you to the back room or what yeah you're in the vip uh they don't yeah. move you anywhere no somebody comes over really quickly and really calmly and puts two wet paper towels on your face <laughs> <laughs> okay that sounds fun uh one on your neck one on your forehead um and then fans you with a big fan and mm. They, they like lower your head lower than your feet and the chair, and then they tell you to cross and uncross your legs and clench your buttocks. Okay. And then you get- Yeah, I had to, I remember I had to clench my buttocks uh, while it was happening. Yeah, because you got lightheaded. Well, this was the end of me, like it was the end of it all coming out, and I was wearing a mask, and I was like, I feel like I'm going to throw up all of a sudden. <laughs> um, and then everyone's really generous with extra treats. So I got- mm. Water, apple juice, peak freens, and pretzels. Wow. <laughs> A child's dream. And yes. then I felt better. I um, mean, when I was there, there they were not really, um, you know, it was like an unsupervised craft table. Like, I just, I was putting stuff in my bag. Yeah, I mean... They well, I guess actually maybe there's a volunteer there now because they had all the food spaced out and want to make sure you're not all there together taking it. I guess just oh okay for okay, distancing. Okay. Yes. Like they tell you they they have like squares on the floor to stand in. There's I a see. special square where she was like stand there and wait to exit and see how you feel standing up now. Um, so she was just very like eat 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 because I guess I looked gross. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it was really nice. I talked to the volunteer about like DIY workaround sewing tips for masks and stuff. It was it oh, was yeah. a very nice experience. But I did feel really messed up all day long and drunk and weird. Oh boy. Yeah, Baba Booey, you know? Yeah, Baba Booey indeed. <laughs> so that's um my update. Give blood if you can. In the States, I think you can make <laughs> money doing it. Wait, when can you make money? In the United States, I think you Oh yeah, in the States, yeah. They yeah. pay you for it. In here just fill up your tote bag with 
you know, juice boxes. Yeah, mine was like Oreo Thins. A lot <laughs> I, of Oreo Thins. I also found it funny that the people like me who were who were, who were, who were, who were not like me, the ones who weren't like feeling kind of punk, um, were, I mean, punky, like pale, were, um, yeah. were like so like, ugh, okay, I'll just take this. And I'm like, you just donated a pint of blood. You can just, you can take, cook, you've earned it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've earned it, guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, should we listen to this interview? Please. So, from the not any more empty streets of Las Vegas. Yeah. Uh, actually, from his apartment, he does not go out that much. It's um, an interview with Michael Rahal. Here we go. Okay. <laughs> bye. Okay, bye. Bye, Dan. I'm going to drink more black tea. Go nuts. Uh, Hi, everybody. It's Becky. I'm back. And I'm really excited to have an interview from afar again today. It's my friend Michael Rahal in Las Vegas. Hello, Michael. Hi, Becky. How are you? Good. How are you for real? What's going on? Uh, I'm doing okay, man. You know, I'm doing okay. It's like... Uh, it could be so much worse, couldn't it? <laughs> well, I don't know what your situation is. I, I feel that way myself. Uh, yeah. I'm in Las Vegas. Uh, I'm on the 15th floor of a, of an apartment building, uh, in a really nice apartment that I rented for myself. And, uh, uh, you know, it's funny. It's like, um, I'm in this situation where like from lots of outside perspectives, it could be considered, like I'm in a really bad place or things are really hard or life is really shitty, but it doesn't feel that way to me. Yeah. Uh, cause I, I moved to Las Vegas cause I got a job in the absence show playing gazillionaire, the host character. And I got 14 shows and then we closed because of COVID-19. And, um, just in that span of time, I signed a lease and rented an apartment and moved my life out here and picked up everything and just basically uprooted and um, now I'm like here and it's super intense. And at the same time, I'm just like sitting on all this abundance. I have this beautiful place and a fridge full of food and enough money to like scrape by. And okay. I was worried food. about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's tricky, right? Because it's like in the States, you know, we have these kind of um, the, the unemployment insurance kind of structure when you lose your job, you have to have worked for your job for 90 days in order to qualify. Right. So I was convinced that I wouldn't qualify. But, um, you know, I also used to be in the Blue Man Group show uh, and I was paid through Las Vegas. So in the state of Nevada, I qualify for unemployment insurance. So I get it. You were doing Blue Man in Los Angeles? Uh, no, just freelance. Ah. Uh. Yeah, like all over. So they do gigs all over, um, I mean, you know, in the U.S. and Europe and South America and stuff. And I was one of those guys. They call us bench blue men. Oh, good. <laughs> so we're not, full, we're not full-time in a cast, but we're available to do like outside appearances or to do coverage and shows if somebody's on vacation or gets injured. Right. And so the, the way that works is that you have like a home city through which you're paid and mine was Las Vegas. Um, so have you lived in Las Vegas before? I have. Yeah. I lived here for a year in 2014 and then like scattered months uh, throughout for the last like 20 years when I worked for Blue Man full time. And um, how do you feel about the city? 
Vegas, yeah. man, I used to really dislike it. I used to find it really uh, kind of apocalyptic and depressing. <laughs> right. Because there is like a, there is an element to Vegas where like every aspect of it is manufactured. Like nothing that's here should really be here. Yeah. We have to pull water from hundreds of miles away and pull power from hundreds of miles away and like it just is like a, a totally manufactured environment and it's it's apparent in everything you look at it's just like wow that's that's only here because you know of blank and and like as the moment any of those resources disappear it's just the, the infrastructure here would just crumble yeah and, it, and it's also like a it's like a shadow self in a way of other places all jammed up together right right <laughs> right, right and the people who are here especially in when the tourism you know situation is really high it's this crazy cross-section of america right like you have extremely rich people and then you have like lots of middle america you know the, the sort of you know french fry eating conservatives just like wandering around shit face drunk and like it can be a lot of opportunities to see people and judge them right right <laughs> And that was where my head used to go. Like I would be, I'd have to walk through the casino to get to work. And uh, I would just see people sitting at slot machines, hammering cigarettes and looking like zombies. And I would judge them. And I started to realize that that experience was like contributing to a general negativity and depression in my, <laughs> in my sort of outlook. Right. And, um, so I, 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 was, I would just be unhappy all the time. And I started to kind of look at that and like think, you know, what the hell is going on? I have to find a way to stop doing that because I'm just feeling depressed. It's like road rage, right? Like if I'm in the car, any drive and I'm road raging, I would just be angry and depressed at the end of every drive. Right. So I just was like, okay, how can I stop doing that? So I started trying to see all the people as beautiful right. <laughs> this way, you know, because uh, humans are really beautiful and like, we're so lumpy and like misshapen and, and idiosyncratic. And we just cover ourselves with all this shit that we don't need. And it's the best that we can do. Right. It's like the best that we've got. And it's kind of beautiful and sad and hilarious and wonderful. all at once. What do you mean? It's the so best that we've got. Well, if you think about it, like everyone is doing the best that they can all the time. Mm. Even people who are beating the shit out of their children or their wives, you know, that person is doing the best that they can. Donald fucking Trump is doing the best that he can with the tools that he's got. Like that dude, you know, I mean, yes, uh, he's evil and he's awful and he's terrible and he's doing horrible things, but that's the best that he's got. Where are you getting this from? Is this something you came upon or is this from some teachings? Um, well, I'm in, <laughs> I'm in a 12 step program. I'm in a couple of them actually. Okay. <laughs> and, 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 um, you know, I'm, I'm an alcoholic and I'm in recovery, but the thing that's mostly I'm, I'm involved in is, is a program called Al-Anon and it's for the families and friends of alcoholics. Yeah. And, and, you know, the gist of it basically is like I, as someone who grew up with alcoholism in my family, uh, repeat those patterns in my adult relationships where I find unstable relationships um because i have like a a patternized set of you know whatever like a patternized set of um personal you know rules or structure or something where i like uh have like this addiction to drama or abandonment or 
chaos or, you know, if I don't have a crisis to manage, I don't really know how to handle myself. Right. So, so over the course of that time, eventually for me, that became, um, I kind of like hit bottom for lack of a better description with that, that became totally unmanageable and I had to make a change. And so I stepped into this program and it's really changed the way that I view and, and, and operate in my life. Um, and part of that is, you know, I started to really inventory my behavior. Like, for example, what I was saying about walking through the casino, like I look at people and judge them. Okay, why am I doing that? Uh, because I don't want to look at my own shit because I don't want to have my own feelings because I don't want to deal with my own problems. You know, yeah. it's that stupid cliche of when I point one finger at you, there's three fingers pointing at me or whatever. So anyway, one of the tenets of that is, is working toward compassion for the alcoholics in your life who caused you harm. For example, if you grew up with an alcoholic parent, at some point, it's important to get into compassion for that person right. and realize that what's going on with that person who's drinking is that the person that you love is not in control. It's the alcohol or the alcoholism or the addiction that is in control, right? right? Like my, you know, someone in my family is a heroin addict and what I'm dealing with when they're active in their addiction is not the person who I love. It's the heroin. Right. So that puts me in a place where I can have compassion for that person and that, and kind of see that that person's behavior is the best that they can do. Right. Is that, and is that teachings from uh, Al-Anon? Yeah. How long have you been involved in Al-Anon? Uh, it's about nine years and change now. I'm oh, wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's been a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you, I mean, I asked that cause you speak with a zeal that sounds new, but I guess it just continues to work for you. Oh, no, I'm new every day. I mean, I wake up with the same kind of spin cycle happening in my head every day. You know, the only difference between me and somebody who's in their first week is I just like turn to the tools a little bit sooner. What tools have you found the most helpful? Uh, man, self-care, you know, um, trusting that I'm not in control, you know, like, um, mm. you know, without getting too wooji wooji, like, no, please. I, I, I love that stuff. <laughs> okay, good. I, I don't actually believe that I'm like steering the boat, if that makes sense. Uh huh. Right. I, I know that. So like, like, um, the, let me give a practical description of how I feel about this. Like there's a, there's a saying in Alan on it's you row and, and God for lack of a better description. Yeah. And we, we can talk about God and how I see God in yeah. a minute, but like they say, you row God steers. Right. So what that means to me is that as long as in everything I do, I'm doing the best that I can, I'm doing everything that I can while kind of taking care of myself and not driving myself to exhaustion or distraction or unmanageable an unmanageable place. I can trust and let go of the results, right? right? So like if I'm trying to get a job or if I'm trying to whatever, like if I'm writing grant proposals or if I'm, you know, uh, whatever, auditioning for a, for a show, you know, if I do the work that I know that I can do and if I do everything to the best of my ability and relax as much as I can and try to have fun and blah, 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 get my shit together really, really strong and go in there and just release and do it and enjoy my experience, then the results are not up to me, right? Literally, the results are not up to me. So I get to just let go. And that for me is like um, the universe steering me. And that just means as long as I'm doing the best I can, the universe, uh, the the force that in the universe that, that that is out there making it possible for us to feel connected to each other will put me where I'm supposed to be. Well, 
Okay, I I think this is stuff I really need to hear and listen to. But I also mm. want to ask, like, mm-hmm. is then is there anyone who isn't doing the best they can? Uh, I don't believe so. Yeah, nice. I really don't believe so. Because, like, you know, even people who are causing harm, you know, there's a reason for that. Like, you can unpack all of that shit, you know. Like, look at Kim Jong-un. Like, there's a reason that dude operates the way that he does. You know, he's just a human who has been damaged by other humans who were damaged by other humans. And the damage is handed down from generation to generation to generation and makes these people who just operate in a way that is totally selfish and seemingly malicious and causes tons and tons of pain and, you know, that has the power to ripple outward and control an entire society. Do you feel like that's cosmic in some way? I don't, uh, what do you mean? What do you mean by cosmic? Well, I guess I mean like the intergenerational stuff, like, I don't know, inherited soul things or whatever. Mm -hmm. I I think that, I mean, I think that, um, that, uh, uh, damage and pain can be inherited. Right. Uh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, for example, like my mother and my father are not drinkers, but my, and my grandfathers, my grandparents were not drinkers, but their parents, my great grandfather on my mother's side was a raging alcoholic. Uh, and so as a result, his son, my grandfather was like totally Alanonic. And for me, Alanonic means like he became the parent in his family unit. Right. And when my when my great grandfather, his father would come home super drunk, my grandfather used to beat him wow. up. Wow. So so like and what that made as as an adult and a father, my grandfather was super perfectionistic, married this woman who was hyper perfectionistic and a totally anal retentive control freak and they uh, handed down those behaviors to my mother and my mother rebelled against that and uh, but, but at the same time, like my mother's parenting style is very cloying and coddling. And she tries to, um, I, I like to say she tries to make it 72 degrees around you all the time. Do you need a blanket? Do you need some food? Do you want this? Do you want that? <laughs> it's just like, she's all over you with like trying to preemptively meet your needs, huh. which is, which is in my experience, a codependent behavior. Right. And that was handed down to me. And actually, this is interesting. Um, what's your What's your family story like? What's your American tale? Yeah, my uh, so my mother's side of the family are all from St. Louis. My 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 grandfather is from the St. Louis Irish ghetto, and my grandmother was like high society St. Louis. Huh. Um, yeah, and um, on my grandfather's side. Uh, supposedly were descended from Thomas Jefferson and one of his slaves. That's like that Key and Peele sketch. Oh, yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> it's a brilliant yeah. sketch. Yeah, it's an amazing sketch. But yeah, so like there's some, they've been doing some tracing. So like Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings had three sons and Sally Hemings was fair-skinned with red hair, right? She was a one-quarter African, what they called at the time, a quadroon, I believe, was yeah. the term they used. Yeah, yeah, um, And so they had three sons uh, from their, uh, like, affair or whatever. And when he died, uh, she asked him on his deathbed to purchase their freedom. And they moved to St. Louis and passed for white, right? Right. Uh, quote, unquote, passed for white. 
And supposedly one of those three guys is, is my ancestor. So that's my mother and my, my grandmother's family is all from Germany. I have some picture of like a great, great, great uncle who was like a, a general in the Prussian army or some shit. Uh -huh. Super crazy. So on my father's side, uh, everybody's from Lebanon. Right. Um, my father, my grandfather is from a little town called, uh, a city called Merjayun, which is in the south of Lebanon, uh, right near the Israeli border. It's like really beautiful and mountainous. Uh, I've never been, unfortunately, because like Hezbollah controls everything down there right now. Yeah. It's not super safe to go there. But I do want to go to Beirut. And my brothers and I want to take my father to Beirut because he's never been. He's never been. Um, no. But so my grandfather, when he was 16, came over to the States uh, and moved immediately to Oklahoma because there was like a thing. And during that time when the Turks uh, were doing all this persecution and murdering all these Christians all these Christian Lebanese people left Lebanon and came over to the United States. And my grandfather was one of them and they would move in these big tribal groups uh, and all kind of set up shop in one particular area. And my grandfather's family and extended family had set up shop in, in central Oklahoma in a little town called uh, Hilton. And that's where my grandfather went and he married his second cousin, my grandmother. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, my grandmother and oh, grandfather. Oh, your grandparents. Sorry, side. not your parents. Yeah. No, my grandparents are second cousins. Oh, my great-grandparents uh, are first cousins. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Shit. Isn't that amazing? Like, they just used to do that all the time. It's yeah, like, and weirdly, for me, it's on the Jewish side, which is pretty unusual. Um, mm. But, yeah, they, they like, eloped to Thunder Bay. <laughs> oh, wow. Whoa. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah, the tree kind of gets narrow at a certain point, the family tree. <laughs> <laughs> and is that because, did they elope because it was like not uh, kosher with the rest of the family that they were getting married? Mm, kosher, thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't actually know. And I don't think there's anyone left I could ask. Oh, wow. I mean, my grandmother just passed away a year and a half ago at 102. So... This oh, was, wow. It was her parents. It was a long time ago. Wow. Um, so you said we can talk about God later. Yeah, for sure. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, I, 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 have, I have a relationship with something bigger than me that's not me, that loves me more than I love myself, and it's there for me when I need it, right? And because I was raised in like a Christian household, my mother is an Episcopal deacon, right? So they, they – uh, um, what does that mean? I don't know. A deacon is like uh, in the Episcopal Church. The Episcopal Church is pretty cool, actually. I'm not a Christian, but the Episcopal Church is pretty rad. It's like um, they have all the ritual of Catholicism, but none of the guilt. They don't believe in hell. So like huh. uh, they have gay priests and trans priests and married priests and you can drink and smoke and fuck and like have a life and be a human person. Right. And uh, they don't care. And like they, they actually for, for the Episcopalians, God's love is uh unconditional and and totally redemptive doesn't matter what you do doesn't matter what you do in your life doesn't matter how how horrible you were or not um everybody gets into heaven like that's the 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 power of god's forgiveness according to the episcopal church which right. i think is actually pretty great right because we in western culture don't believe that we deserve uh love right because God's our, our separation from God in the Bible was a transgression, right? Like we Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the tree of knowledge and were cast out of 
paradise. Yeah. And as a result, all of humanity for all of the future, at least up until Christ's sacrifice, had to earn God's love, right? We have to fucking prostrate ourselves before God and fucking suffer and confess and, and everything else in order to earn God's love. And like what that instills in us in Western culture is that we don't deserve love. Whereas in Eastern cultures, man's separation from God is like a mistake. It's like not somebody's fault. Right. Which, mean, which means that there's not this like inherent belief that we don't deserve love. Anyway, um, so like uh, my, uh, through, through Al-Anon, through 12 steps, like I, when I got into this 12 step program, when I stepped into Al-Anon, I was super depressed. Um, my younger brother uh, was a heroin addict and a crystal meth addict right. uh, and had been for about 10 years. And my older brother uh, is also uh, in recovery. He's got 18, 19 years in recovery now. Wow. Um, yeah. So there's like, you know, my family tree is full of like bottles and hypodermic needles. Right. And, and I was like super obsessed with that and, uh, repeating all those dysfunctional patterns in my life. And I had, and, and growing up in that environment, I was always just making space for other people and never taking any space for myself. Everybody's feelings and problems and life and shit was like bigger than mine. And so I had no sense of self. I didn't know what I liked, didn't know what I wanted. I was totally codependent, looking for an external source to tell me I'm okay, tell me I exist, tell me I deserve to be loved. Right. Um, and so what that turns into as an adult is like depression and suicidal ideation. And uh, I didn't really want to be alive because it was just too fucking hard and too painful. Somebody would ask me, what do you want to do for dinner? You know, a girlfriend or my wife even at that point. Uh, what do you want for dinner? And I would freak out and panic. Because I wanted to choose the thing that she wanted. I didn't want to rock the boat. I didn't want to cause any problems. Whoa. And so it's just like, yeah, I get into this headspace where it's like super anxious all the time or really, really depressed and filled with self-loathing and self-obsession. And I got to a point where I was like, okay, I'm either going to blow my fucking brains out or I'm going to get some help. Um, and my wife had been going to Al-Anon at that time because she also has stuff in her family. Um, and... Uh, she and I was really cranky because I didn't want to pay for a fucking therapist to sit and watch me cry for an hour. Right. And she said, all right, well, Al-Anon is free because the 12 the step programs, they don't cost anything. It's all self-supporting through voluntary contributions and stuff. So I went to a meeting and at that meeting, someone said, my brother's a junkie and I haven't spoken to him in six months. And like that was exactly what was going on with me at the time. And I thought, huh, OK, well, maybe I'm in the right place. So then I started kind of going to meetings a little bit more regularly, like one or two a week, kind of checking it out, um, kind of hearing my story, hearing some support systems kind of possible and people talking about walking through these experiences of being like super self-obsessed and self-loathing um, and kind of being able to put that rock down and not have that weight on them anymore. And I started to hear people talking about, okay, get a sponsor, work the 12 steps. Maybe you can create some change for yourself or apply some new tools to these, to this pattern of thinking to try to not allow it to rule your life so much. So I started, I, I started working with a sponsor and then I started to kind of have I started to through have this. I started to have this experience where, like, I would go to the meeting, and after the meeting, I would just feel better. Right. I would just feel like I had taken a shower or like rinsed off my fucking brain with like a you know like little hose. Right. And through that experience, I started to trust that that would happen if I went to the meeting. Right. 
So through that trust, I started to, I got a sponsor. I started to work the steps and through working steps, I started to actually grow beyond just trust, right? Like I started to know that if I go to the meetings, if I do this work, if I apply the tools to my life, my life will be better. So then I start to have what I would, what I can only describe as faith in the same way that like I have faith that the sun is going to come up in the morning, right? I have faith that, uh, if I go to a meeting at a specific time, that meeting is going to be there, right? It's like through experience, through trust, I build and grow into this thing that's more than trust. And I think it can really only be described as faith. So I have faith that something bigger than me, that's not me, that loves me more than I love myself and is there for me when I need it is going to be there for me if I go to the meetings and do the work. Is that, so the, is that their wording? Uh, no, that's mine. Yeah. That's mine. Yeah. Like I started to think to myself like what, what, so, so for me, what that looks like is uh, described in 12 steps as a higher power. Yeah. Like they don't necessarily call it God. They call it a higher power, a higher power of our understanding. So it's not handed down from anyone. It's not prescribed by anyone or even described by anyone. Each individual is encouraged to describe it for themselves and develop a relationship with it for themselves. Like it has like every individual has their own version of it and there's no one um, description of it. Like, so for me, I really had a problem with this idea of God and, and, and it was really tied to Christianity for me. And right. I didn't, I didn't like any of that stuff and really struggled with that. And so my sponsor suggested that the group, the community of the 12 step program, the support community could be a higher power or a higher authority for, for lack of a better word. And so if I thought about it, I, I would think about, okay, like, what are those, what is that for me? It's bigger than me, right? Cause it's a group of people. It's not me, right? It loves me more than I love myself. Like that community is always there for me. And even if I disappear forever and come back, they never say, where have you been? They always just say like, how have you been? Right. Nice. Totally accepting, totally unconditional. It's, it loves me more than I love myself. And it's there for me when I need it. And that's, that's, that's those four criteria for me are everything that a higher power should be, you know. So what are meetings um, like now? You mean for me? I mean, now in all of this. Oh, uh, they're on Zoom typically. Yeah. 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 Uh, and it's hard, you know, because so much of um, the community experience is like being in a room with people, being in contact with people, you know. Yeah, it sounds like church. Uh, yeah. I mean, it could be. It's, it's similar to church. Yeah. I mean, I not say, that yeah. I've been to church. It sounds like the idea of church. Yeah, it sounds like church at its best, right? It's yeah. just a community of people who are supporting one another. But it, the, one of the primary differences from church is that 12-step uh, programs are a totally anarchic system. There are no leaders. There's no governing uh, individuals. Uh, there's, you know, everyone who works in support of it. And they do have... Um, you know, people that they hire for support for service positions um, because each city has its own central office and stuff like that. And there are people who work there, but no one is an authority. Nobody gets to decide the rules. The rules are always decided, decided by group conscience. Um, and they say our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Right. So it's like totally anarchic. 
So even in the midst of the structure of it, when it's handed down from like sponsor to sponsee to sponsee from like person to person, everything is just suggestions, right? There are no hard and fast rules. Like everything that my, like I sponsor guys in the program and they call me and say like, well, what do I do? And I don't ever give them advice ever. You just talk to them? I just talk to them and tell them my experience if I have experience walking through a similar thing that they're having a problem with. How many people have you sponsored? I sponsor right now, I sponsor about 15 guys. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Does it take up a lot of time? Yeah, but fuck, I got nothing but time right now. Yeah, oh, is it, are you sponsoring more <laughs> people now or you always did? Uh, no, I always, I've always sponsored a lot of people. Um, and, and, you know, everybody is working kind of at their own pace. Like it's, it's never more than I can handle. Wow. Um, and if, and if it is, you know, I, you know, I, I kind of cut guys loose or ask them to go find somebody else, but that's never been the case for me. Um, and everybody works the steps at their own pace, you know, like some guys go really, really slow. So it's like a long time between the times that you talk to them. And, and are you available to people, um, like when they're in crisis? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And that's part of the deal. Like I tell them, you know, if you are in crisis and you call me and you need me to call you back, you need to let me know. And then I will do my best to get back to them for sure. Yeah. What parts of it were the hardest for you? Uh, you mean like working through the steps of the program? Yeah. Or periods of time within it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. 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 That's a good question. You know, it goes, it's been a really interesting journey for me. Like, Because when you first come in, uh, you have all this new awareness, right? You have all this, uh, like one of the first things that you learn is is about detachment Um, and detachment in a loving way, not detachment where it's like, you're cut out of my life. I'm not fucking dealing with you anymore. Right. Uh, it's like, for example, with my, you know, you know, people close to me in my life who brought only drama or, or, you know, chaos. Um, I would lovingly create distance between me and them, um, where like when they called me all the time or texted me constantly, I would, um, not respond or give it lots and lots of space. Or if I talked to them, I would tell them, Hey, you know, I'm not available for this right now. I need, you know, um, I'm not available to talk to you right now. So, you know, you get, you start to understand that I started to understand that I was like no longer responsible for people's feelings or happiness, right? Like when you're in a relationship, they say you got to make your partner happy, right? Right. It's like one of the, (laughs) and I learned that that's not true. I am not responsible for someone's happiness or feelings or life. Uh, If my wife and I would go to dinner and I liked my food, but she didn't like her food, I would go into like full on crisis mode. I couldn't possibly like my food if she doesn't like her food. Wow. We have, we have to leave. I have to hate my food too. Right. So I get to have my own experience and let her have her experience. Right. So I get, I like free up all this kind of space in my head where I realize I'm not responsible for someone else anymore. And there's like this kind of rush of like, wow, I have all this new awareness, you know? And then, uh, then the real work starts after that. Where yeah. You start in inventorying. I started inventorying my behavior. You know, one of the steps is we do, uh, a, a personal inventory where I look at my behavior. I look at my resentments. I look at my fears. I uh, look at my sexual behavior over the course of my life. Who have I caused harm to in these ways? Um, and through that, you get this checklist of like, oh, I'm good at this. I'm challenged at this, you know, and, and, 
start to develop a relationship with myself. And then there are little tools in there where you start to like behave in a different way in the world where I was like encouraged to go out into the world and do three nice things for people and nobody can find out about it. Hmm. And like that starts to make me feel differently about myself over the course of a day because I'm just doing something for me and I can't tell anybody about it, you know. But the challenging parts for me were um, the personal inventory stuff. Yeah. Where I like really look at my shit, really look at how I treated people as a result of my, like for example, one of my biggest kind of shortcomings or character defects is dishonesty. I use dishonesty to control how you see me. Right. Right. And like, for example, in love relationships or romantic relationships, I would uh, not be totally honest with the person I'm in the relationship with about how I was feeling or whether I was struggling with the relationship or whether I was happy or unhappy. Right. Uh, because I was trying to control how they see me. And what that would turn into is I would just start acting out and like cheating and stuff. Right. And causing lots and lots of harm. Um, and looking at all that stuff. And then uh, over the course of the steps, I have to actually, if it's possible, get in contact with that person and make direct amends to them right. if possible, unless, unless it would cause more harm than good. Right. Like for example, there was, there was, uh, there were a couple of women in my life who I had, um, treated very, uh, carelessly. Um, when I was in relationships with them, like in college and stuff. Right. And I found out through trying to contact them that they were actively trying to make it impossible for me to contact them. They just didn't, uh, they didn't want it. Yeah. Yeah. They just didn't want to fucking hear from me. Right. So I'm just like, okay. So in that case, working through that with my sponsor, what I had to do is called a living amends. Um, and an amends and an apology are two different things, right? Like, uh, apology is I'm sorry. And amends is a commitment to myself to change my behavior for the foreseeable future. Right. Right. So like, uh, I make what's called a living amends, which is I really look at my relationships with women and try to change the way I operate, uh, with women in my life. And that really, uh, opened my eyes to so much of my, uh, sexism and like, you know, kind of like ingrained misogyny, um, yeah. you know, and, and like unconscious bias when it came to women in my life and like really looking at that shit, uh, as unflinchingly as possible. And that was really challenging and it's, painful at times. It's tough. Um, it's really tough. I had to get an apology call once that I did not want to take. And in retrospect, I shouldn't have had to do oh, that. Oh, wow. I was a teenager. Yeah. Um, and this is, I mean, this is a pretty intense thing to bring up, but it was some, yeah. it was a woman who had dated my father who accused me of having an affair with my father. Whoa. Wow. That's I know. Awful. She was uh, having some pretty severe mental health issues, but I was like, why are her therapists? I was a teenager when she called me to apologize. Wow. Wow. How but, old were you? Uh, like when she eight, called you, I mean. 18, 19. Wow. Wow. That's so intense. Becky. I know. And at the time I was like, okay, she's just going through this. I got to listen to this. But then I was like, wait a second. I was a teenager. Nobody offered me any support dealing with this absolute yeah. madness. And I yeah. had to tell my dad what had just happened. Wow. Now, <laughs> how did your father respond to that? Um, well, it's not like we didn't know. We already knew something very severe was happening. 
Mm-hmm. So it's not like I had to, you know, we were already dealing with that as a family. Yeah. So it was yeah. just like, here's another thing you need to know this is going on. Wow. Was but, he still with her at the time? Uh, no, but like okay. supporting the situation, I guess. Uh-huh. Gotcha. Anyway. Yeah, I just thought of that when you said that. I was like, why did I have to take that call as a teenager? He did not know that that was happening. She was like in treatment. (laughs) And this was what, Uh, or maybe she decided to do that. I don't know. Yeah, well, it's tricky, right? Like sometimes those uh, attempts at making amends do more harm than good. And it's super important to like have a sponsor or a person who's there with you who has more experience than you doing this stuff to kind of help you un- help you get clarity on whether or not it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Well, there's, I mean, that also, that also sort of, I think spills into therapy too. Like, mm. you know, people have their yeah. own assignments to better themselves, but they end up, they can, they can end up using the people around them as props for themselves. Yeah, for sure. Like for having sure. big dramatic sort of working through things, but it's really for them. And it can be very, mm-hmm. I've also been in that situation where I'm like, I can't handle this right now. I got my own shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So how does all this, how, how does all this and this outlook relate to your feeling about the world right now, your country, mm-hmm. your yeah. Las Vegas is Las Vegas is very confusing to the world at the moment, I think. <laughs> and I'm sorry, yeah, like, man. you know, as someone who also comes from a place that had a very embarrassing mayor, yeah. Oh, man. So embarrassing, right? Oh, my God. This poor woman. What a mess she is. Okay. So what's your feeling on that? Oh, yeah. You love everybody. But like, so for anyone, who, <laughs> for anyone who doesn't know, the mayor of Las Vegas was interviewed on Anderson Cooper and just, uh, I mean, pretty out she of was... it, <laughs> kind of said that she would offer up her citizens as a oh. test, like a control group to get to, oh. to just be thrown to coronavirus. So brutal. So brutally human, right? She's so human. So messy. Humans, yeah. we're just so messy, right? We just make so many horrible mistakes. <laughs> and people just die and horrible shit happens. Fuck. I mean, it's so it's so incredible, you know? So She's how- so human. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty <laughs> wonderful way to put it. So how do you yeah. feel about all this, the place that you're in, what you're seeing yeah. around you? Well, you know, for me, it's, it's really hard to see what's happening around me because Las Vegas is one of those places that responds very quickly to, to those voices, right? Donald Trump is saying, everybody go out, you know, or whatever. Like she, the the mayor is saying like, oh, it's okay. It's no big deal. Like all that shit. Um, Las Vegas is one of those places that responds like what I've noticed since, you know, for the last month, there have been no cars, no cars. And I've been going out riding my bicycle when I can, riding to my friend's house. You know, I have a little group of eight people. The eight of us have agreed not to have any contact with any other people. So the eight of us, it's like two families and then two individuals can kind of have a little community together and have some human contact. Right. You're living and in like a, like a roommate situation. Yeah, not living, but but, but I go I as go far from as contact. my apartment to their house. Yeah, basically, yeah. yeah. It's like a roommate situation where we kind of agree as a group to have like the, you know we have like the honor system. We don't go out and contact other people. And and um, on my ride, my daily ride from my apartment to their house, which is about ten minutes, I would see no cars. And now, ever since Donald Trump and the mayor of Las Vegas and all these people and the Georgia 
governors trying to open up the state and they're starting to talk about easing the restrictions. Yeah. Even even hinting at talking about easing the restrictions, people are just out. There's cars everywhere. Really? I see a bunch of like 20-somethings out on like rented bicycles, you know, that you can rent bicycles on the street here. No masks, no gloves. They're all super close to each other. And I'm just like, you know, what can I do? I just feel compassion for them. They're just human. They're scared. They don't want to be scared. What makes me not feel scared? Fuck it. I'm going outside. I'm going outside. Who cares? We're okay. doesn't matter. We're go- I'm going outside. And, you know, that's their right. I yeah. get to allow them the dignity of their own experience. Right? It's not my responsibility to get in there and be like, what are you doing? You know, what happens then if I'm doing that? My life gets unmanageable. But someone has to do those things. People govern responsibly. People are in positions where they tell people what's right and wrong. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I'm grateful that I know that that's not me. (laughs) Got it. Right. So, so like, okay, for example, like for me, like, what can I do? Right. What can I do to make the world a better place? So I I, I can get really caught up in the news cycle. Uh, I could go and like join a political organization and really get into it. But I'm not going to do that. That's, that's not me. I'm, I'm honest enough with myself to know that I'm not going to do that. Right. Uh, I could move to fucking Africa and dig wells and try to help people get water. I could move to fucking Haiti and help build houses for people, you know, but I'm not going to do that. I know myself well enough to know that's not what I'm going to do. Um, so what can I really do? What realistically can I do? How can I be of service to the world around me? Now, I know that in 12-step programs, for example, I am of service, right? I am personally of service to a community of men specifically because I don't go to mixed meetings. Um, I specifically, you know, make it – it's just I I work – only with men and, you know, I typically uh, outreach with men. So I I am of service to a community of men who go out into the world as a result of that service and try to be less toxic. Right. So that has a ripple effect. Okay. So though I sponsor guys who sponsor guys who sponsor guys and all those people try are, are doing what they can to try to go out into the world and be less toxic as men, as individuals, as human people. Um, so there's that I have that I get to, Take comfort in that. And then also I go out into the world and do nice. I still do the three nice things for people each day that nobody can find out. Every single day? Every single day. And it's really simple stuff. I slow my car down, let somebody go in front of me. You know, I um, open the door for someone. I, uh, you know, I'm really careful with social distancing, blah, blah, blah. If somebody's struggling with something, I help them carry it or something like that. Um, So there's that stuff. Right. I do that stuff. Uh, I do other things like make eye contact with people on the street, smile, say hello. Uh, I don't road rage anymore. When I'm driving, I am uh, more of a defensive driver as, instead right. of an offensive driver. Right. You know, and the, that stuff, however small, has a ripple effect. Right. Right. I, I truly, truly believe that. And I have to believe it. Otherwise, what is the point? What is the fucking point of being alive? There so- is none. Does politics just not get you down anymore? No, I don't pay attention to politics. Politics is just a human problem. It's not my responsibility. Right. I'm not political. I just, I, that situation for me is, is, is a, a fertile ground for obsessive thinking and, and fear. 
Oh, right? oh, I'll, tell me about it. I'll drift from my place of faith and gratitude and trusting that the world is on its own journey that is not my story to tell. Um, you know, as I have my own higher power, so does the world, so does every individual, so does, you know, it's like there is a there is a person writing this story of our planet and it's not me. Right. You know, and I fucking take comfort in that, man. It really helps me relax and just be a nicer person to the people around me. Well, this has been really illuminating for me. This is stuff I need to hear because I do just sit here reading the news, obsessing and getting upset pretty Mm -hmm. much 24-7. And then I watch um, Sex and the City and rot my brain. (laughs) So I'm in a bad cycle. (laughs) Well, yeah. And like there's nothing wrong with watching the news and being informed, right? But like for me, all the obsessive thinking, like really what is that doing but feeding my fears, right? Unless I'm going to go out and do something about it. It's just feeding my fear. Yeah. So I have to like structure my life against that a little bit. I got, I personally stay out of the news cycle. I scan the headlines to see if there's new information. I go to the CDC website every day and just like check, is there new information? Is there stuff I need to know? You know, but like, other than that, like I'm just listening to humans opinions. If I listen to the New York times, the daily, like a few days ago, there's some doctor on there talking about how many years this is going to last. Yeah, We talked about that on the podcast. Yeah. It's going to change the world forever and how fucked up it's all going to be like, that's yes, that all sounds intense and it's good to hear a scientist talk about that stuff. But I also get to remember that's just a human person and that person is not writing the story of the future. Well, also, I mean, I don't know. I listened to that and I just wasn't as upset as some of my friends. Mm-hmm. I thought, okay. Yeah. yeah. Like that's going to happen. It is good to know like what's, <laughs> what's predicted by scientists. But then I just think, yeah. okay, so this is going to last a little longer. So I should plan in this way. Maybe, maybe that maybe, maybe, maybe not. Maybe I tend not, to think, right? I tend to think he's not too far off the mark, but also that yeah, it doesn't stress yeah, me out. Not. Right. Right. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, yeah, man, I just, the thing that I continually remind myself is this is still just a human being. Humans can't predict the future. We don't know what's going to happen. You know? Yeah. But we some do better know. than others. Sure. Yeah, sure. Some do better than others. And I get to listen to those and I get to like take what I like and leave the rest. Yeah, it's true. And like, and also to listen to it, kind of know that someone thought that, but then you don't have to internalize the stress if you can avoid it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, usually at this point, people plug whatever social media they have, but. <laughs> I have none. Yeah, I know. Well, and, and you can't even plug the show you're in because it's not happening. Yeah. What's yeah, the show when it comes back? Abs- it- uh, yeah, Absinthe at Caesar's Palace. It's a really fun show. Okay, it's well. It's like <laughs> super dirty and 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 uh, really fun and really messy and lots. Of, you get to you get to humanize all these circus performers because we're like super close to them. You get to see them like shaking and sweating and sometimes you can hear them breathing and that's kind of rad. I want to see it. Not that I don't know that I'll ever be able to. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Maybe that doctor's Maybe. wrong. Actually, Vegas is open. I could book a ticket tomorrow. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're just going to open it up. Fuck it. We're all going to do, we're going to do the show in hazmat suits. Or just spit on people. Get it all over with. Doesn't matter. Oh, man. Just yeah. kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a, a bunch of new perspectives we haven't covered, and it means a lot to me. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Becky. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye.
DH Word Podcast is happy to be part of the Shop family of productions. Follow the shop on Instagram at the underscore shop to. Artwork this week by Missy Kulik, and our theme music as always by Laura Barrett. For information on all of our artists and guests, please follow us everywhere at the H Word Pod or sign up for our newsletter at the hwordpod.com. <laughs>